time. Well, good morning, Harvest Muskoka, Harvest Prairie Sound. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus. We're going to be in Titus chapter 3 this morning. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, we have people with Bibles who would love to get Bibles into your hand. If you don't have a Bible, didn't bring a Bible, forgot your Bible, if you throw your hand up, they'll get a Bible into your hands. If you don't own a Bible, for sure throw your hand up. Grab one of these as our gift to you uh, and grab it and turn to the book of Titus. Might be a tough book to find. You can use your table of contents. It's in the New Testament near the back. The book of Titus, a little small letter. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. As you're turning there, just a question for you this morning to get started. Do you you ever feel out of place as a Christian? Like you you watch TV, you you watch movies, you you listen to podcasts or the radio, or even just among the the circle of friends that you have, and, and, and... and you think, man, if, if I actually live out what the Word says, if I actually live this out and live like a Christian is called to live, I am going to be so out of step with my culture. I'm going to be so out of step in so many areas of my life, and, and, and we feel like we're a bit out of place as Christians, so then what do we do with that? I mean, if, if, I, if I live out what Scripture has called me to live out, it's pretty obvious. Scripture says that this world is not our home. This is not our final destination. We, we are going to feel out of place here in our culture. So what do we do? I mean, our, our choice is we, we can just assimilate. We can just join right in. We can live like this is our home, like, like this is our final destination, like this is everything, our reality and What happens when we do that? We start to worry about the here and now. We start to worry we're going to miss out on what's happening now. We start to worry that that I need to be known here. And we put all our hope in the here and now when we assimilate. Uh, Another option is we can can fully remove ourselves and and we can hide out. We we can kind of treat it, well, I know this isn't my home. I'm just passing through. So I'm going to treat it like a a tourist and and I'm not going to really engage in anything. And it's like when you go to another country and you never leave the resort. People are like, hey, how was the country? I don't know. I stayed at the resort the whole time. I went out once, but I found a McDonald's. It was okay. I didn't have to eat eat any of the the local food, right? And and we can kind of treat our Christianity in this way. But again, we read in Scripture, not a good way to live. We're not called to hide out and huddle up and just wait for Jesus to come back. Neither of those is a biblical response to to either hide out or just jump all in. There has to be another option. And here in the book of Titus, Paul lays out for us the Holy Spirit through Paul lays out, here's how you're to live. And, and this, this book, Titus, it's a letter to this young church planter named Titus. He's on the island of Crete. And Paul has given him this pretty difficult task. He says, hey, hey, why don't you plant churches in Crete, in this culture that is so anti-Christian, that is so opposite of what you're called to live, and, and I want you to plant churches there. Plant churches in a place where all of culture is going in a completely different direction. That's where I want you to do it, Titus. And so Titus was called to stand and, and say, yeah, I know this is what culture says, but, but here's what God's Word says. And so... Let me catch you up as we're ending off this series. If you're just joining with us, chapter one, Paul says, hey, hey, Titus, remember to stand firm in the gospel. Remember the, the promise of the gospel in your life. Be, be confident in, in who you are in Christ. You, you will face horrible times. You, you'll be discouraged on some days. You, you'll hear things that, that hurt and, and you'll have discouraging thoughts, but remember the truth of the gospel. 
He then goes on and says, plant churches. And when you, when you plant churches, it, make sure you plant churches and, and you have godly elders in those churches, people who can lead from God's word, lead with godly lives. And then in chapter two, he, he was laying out for Titus and, and here's how it works in the church. Here's how you actually live it out as the family of God. And he talks about older men and older women being models, being examples for the younger generation to look to and say, I want to follow your life. Basically, Paul's just calling out, he's, he's calling out middle-aged Christians saying, hey, hey, don't pour your whole life out for your career. He's saying to older Christians, hey, hey, don't check out because you're retired now and you're just going to pull out and disengage. No, 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 no. Engage with younger men and younger women as role models, as mentors, as disciplers, as, as people that, that the younger generation can go, man, I want to live my life like that. I want to be shepherded by that person. Then, then Paul also calls out the younger Christians to, to really press into the call of the gospel in their lives. And then chapter three, he shifts. He's been talking all about, hey, here's how you live in the family. Here's how it works amongst yourselves. But then he shifts. He goes, now let's talk about outside of the church. Let's not talk about small groups anymore. Let's not talk about Sunday mornings. Let's not talk about getting coffee with a, a brother or sister in Christ. But what's it look like out there? And we know, we know Jesus says, love your neighbor, right? And we're like, oh, that's so nice. Jesus is so nice. Love my neighbor. And I, I do love my neighbor. And you're thinking about your neighbor. You're like, my neighbor's great. When I'm away, he'll, he'll maybe look after my house for me. Or, man, she's so great to my kids. I just, I just love my neighbor. Good call, Jesus. But what about that person who's not such a great neighbor? What about that, that coworker or, or teacher or, or prof or, or friend that takes jabs at your faith all the time? What about that person who, who mistreats you, who, that person who cut you off in traffic, that, that, that person who takes advantage of your kindness, that, that person who doesn't care as much about you as you care about them? How do we respond then? Well, Titus 3 Scripture talks about how the, how the gospel shapes our lives, about how we feel about people on the outside, how, how we feel about people who dislike us, how we feel about people who misrepresent us or, or mistreat us or even persecute us. So if your Bible's open to Titus chapter 3, look what it, it says in verse 1. It says, remind them, talking about us, the church, remind the church to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's the command. That's what we're called to do. But, but he goes on, look at verse three. For, for, that, that's him saying, hey, hey, here's the reason why. This is, this is the command I just gave, but, but why are we doing it? We're doing it because of this. And, and Paul lays out the reason why we live the way we would live as Christians towards those outside of our faith, towards those in our community. And then Paul says, here's the why for the what. And if you read through Scripture, you, you see this all throughout Scripture. You see definitely all throughout when, when Paul's laying out in, in the epistles, going, here's how you're to live. And when, when John lays out all through Scripture and over and over again, you hear, here's the command. But, but with the command, there always comes a promise. Commands always flow out of gospel promises. We'd say it this way, imperatives always flow out of indicatives. What's an imperative? An imperative is a command. You're, you're called to do this. An indicative, that's a statement of fact. 
So the imperatives are, are what God calls us to do. You're, you're to do this, and they, they flow out of the, of the imperatives, the, the, sorry, the indicatives, those, those declarations of what he's done. So it's, let's not get those confused. It's, it's not if you do these things, you live a righteous life, and now God loves you and accepts you. Don't, don't flip those. Here's what the gospel says. You're loved and accepted and transformed and changed. That's the promise, and out of that promise comes the command. When you see your acceptance is by grace alone, in Christ alone, it'll change the way you live. In fact, a book I was reading on worship said it this way. It says, before the gospel tells you to behave or to become, it tells you to behold. Before the gospel tells you to behave or become, it tells you to behold. Look at the promises. See the gospel first. When you place your whole life on the truth of the gospel first, you begin to live differently. You respond to trials so much differently. When you see the promise of the gospel in your life, you respond to people differently. You, you do life differently. You do money differently. You, you do everything differently because you're living with your feet planted on the gospel first, saying, this is a promise that's true about who God is and who I am, and I'm gonna live differently because of this. So, so let's tackle this text here this way. Let's look at the promise first, and then let's look at the call Second. So we're taking notes, here's the promise. The gospel transforms me. The gospel transfor transforms me. So here's the promise, verse 3. It starts with a, with a, a description of who we are. And I'm going to warn you, it's not a real pretty description, all right? Here's what, here's what it says, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, now, now notice what, how it starts. We ourselves, right? This isn't, this isn't scripture saying, hey, those pagans out there, this is what they're like. This is us, right? This isn't our culture. This is you and me. And, and we, were, we were so broken. And you can see in the, the, the verses there how, how Paul divides it. He kind of divides it up in the inner brokenness, what goes on in our hearts, and how that impacts relationships around us. I mean, see the brokenness inside, our, our heart brokenness. We were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And, and then, then because of that brokenness, you can see the impact outwardly around us, to people around us. We pass our days in malice and envy, just angry and envious, we're hated by others and hating one another's. So let's break this down. What, what scriptures say about us then, then outside of the gospel? It says we're foolish. It means, means we're ignorant. It means, it means we're bent, we're warped. Our, our hearts were dumb. Okay, that's what foolish is. Why would I say that our hearts were dumb? It's because as 1 John says, we love darkness rather than light. And then more than that, we will call what's dark, we'll say that's light. We'll call what's light, we'll say that's dark. That's a foolish heart. Not just foolish, but he says we're disobedient. What's that mean? E even when we see things clearly, even when we say, no, that's wrong, that's right, I see that, we still choose the wrong thing. We still choose disobedience. 
You know, I love how Francis Schaeffer said it. He was a, a theologian and a philosopher in the, in, the, in the 60s and 70s. And he said this, he said, if, if we were to show up in heaven and, and we didn't know it, but God had, had planted something on us that recorded our words, but it only recorded every time we said that people should. People should live this way. Boom, recorder goes on. You know, I think people ought to be like this. Boom, recorder goes on. And Schaefer says it this way, when we stand before God and God says, tell you what, I'm not gonna judge you on my whole law of holiness. I'll just judge you on the things that you said people should, people ought. I mean, we'd be condemned. Why? Because we're disobedient. He goes on, he says, we're foolish, we're, we're disobedient, we're led astray. Our, our hearts are so bent. We're, we're, we love sin so much. We wander. We're, we're led astray. We, we hear that call of deception. We go, I want to follow that. Why? Because we're already leaning into it. Our bent hearts, they, they make us easily deceived. And, and here's the thing. No one needs to convince us. No one needs to, to, to teach us to choose sin. No, no one here needed to take a class on, hey, how to lie good. Hey, here's how, here's how you hold on to bitterness. There's a five-part class. Here's how you, like, no one needs that, right? We're pretty good at it naturally. I mean, I think about kids. If you have young kids, right, when you wake up in the morning, you're not expecting to get up on a, on a Saturday morning and find that your kids have fully cleaned the house on their own and they're all sitting on the couch together with their Bibles open, having a worship service before you get up. What are you doing? We just knew we needed to work on our hearts this morning and... No way. No, when you get up, you're like, why is the dog covered in maple syrup and your sister crying, right? That's more how my Saturday mornings will go, right? We're led astray so easily. In fact, he takes it one step further. He says, we're slaves to various passions and pleasures. Our, our separation from God leaves this gap in our heart that makes us reach out horizontally for things to fill that gap. And, and God created us with this need of the transcendent, this, this need of his. And when, when we turn our backs on him, on his love, on, on his purpose, we have this gap. Blaise Pascal called it a vacuum, a God-sized vacuum in our hearts. And, and because it's a vacuum, it can't just stay empty. It has to draw things into it. And so what happens? We reach and grab for whatever we can grab for to fill that space. I've heard it described this way, that when, when you drown, when somebody drowns, they don't drown because they held their breath too long. They drown because they needed to breathe so badly that they breathe in water. It's the same spiritually. When you aren't breathing in God's glory, you begin to breathe in things horizontally. And we become enslaved to those passions. And it's not freedom at all. We think, man, man, I'm choosing to do whatever I want. And we, we don't even see that it's killing us, that it's, it's killing our souls. And we, we can look around, man, we can see the impact of sin in our world and see, man, it's not freedom at all. We think it's freedom. Man, if I could just get out from underneath God's laws, I would be so free. And I like how C.S. Lewis says it. It's, it's like fish saying, man, if I could just get out of this water and on that land, man, I would be free. And, and what happens? The fish dies. It's not freedom at all. 
We've got this vacuum, so, so it's why people are, are looking for, for the, to fill that vacuum. It's why some people go relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship. It's why we become slaves to other people's opinions of us. I mean, God created every one of us to hear these words, well done, well done, son, well done, daughter. And he's created us to hear those words from him as our heavenly father. When we don't hear that, when we don't respond to, to his call on our lives, we look everywhere else for that. Because why? Our soul can't just hold its breath. It has to breathe. So it begins to breathe in. And if we aren't breathing in the gospel every day, we're going to breathe in these false idols. And it'll lead to addictions. It leads to sin. It leads to brokenness. And this brokenness of our hearts and lives, what happens is it doesn't just impact us. It begins to impact those around us. And, and it says this, in verse 3, it says, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. When we set up people as our hope and we say, you're going to bear the weight of my soul. You're going to fulfill in me all the things that I need my soul to have. When we put that weight on people, what happens is we crush them under that weight. And when they collapse under it, we're ticked off. We're disappointed. It's why a lot of marriages that start out so well can end up so bitter. You were supposed to complete me. But, but man, it seems like every day you do something to disappoint me. Or maybe it's your family and you, you need this, this perfect family. When your, your family doesn't live up to those expectations and those standards you have, you begin to resent your family. If, if you're a people pleaser and you, you need the praise of people, you begin to resent when somebody else gets praise, when somebody else gets attention. So many people are struggling to, to forgive and to, to get past an offense and to move past bitterness of somebody that hurt them. Why? Because it goes so much deeper than just a hurt. It's not just an offense. Your, your soul is devastated because you put the weight of your soul on that person and your hope in them, a hope that only the gospel can fulfill. And so when you're, when you're, when you're disappointed, of course you'll be disappointed when it happens. It stirs up malice and envy and hatred. And, and those we're trying to control to fulfill our needs, we begin to resent them. And they begin to resent us. I mean, J.R. Tolkien did, 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 described this and showed this probably in the best way I've seen, right? If you've, if you've watched or read Lord of the Rings and, and Gollum, Right? And, and going, that, that ring is that thing, man. I need that so much. That thing, it's my precious, right? You just want it. And anyone who gets in the way of you getting your precious, whatever that horizontal thing is, man, you're gonna destroy those who will stop you from getting it. You're gonna go after those who, who, will, who will take that away or threaten your precious. And we put all the power and all the hope and all the love into that horizontal hope and we, we will destroy others who get in our way. Why? Why? Because our life, our hope, our joy, our peace, our identity has been placed on that, whatever that is. 
Our hope is placed on, is, is it the praise of others? Is, is it reputation? Is it, is it comfort? Is it power? Is it control? And what happens is it ends up breaking us and those around us. And Paul says, this is who you were before Christ. This is who you are outside of the gospel. It's kind of ugly, isn't it? I mean, I, I much prefer the Disney version of the gospel. Right, this is, well, you're just a bit messy. You just need to kind of be cleaned up a little bit. You just need to believe in yourself because you really do have a good heart. And if you could sprinkle something on, it comes out, oh, wow, look, you are the beautiful princess that, that no one ever knew about. Or prince, whatever, right? And scripture says, no, that's not it at all. Sin has completely corrupted you. You are a total train wreck, foolish, disobedient, led astray, a slave to your passions, living in malice and envy and hatred. And Paul's saying, this is who you are. You're like, encouraging Sunday. I'm glad I came to church today. Thanks, Pastor Kai. Like, was the Israel trip not good? Are you angry or something? What's going on? <laughs> Listen, this is just what the word says. And, and, and I'm saying this because this is actually good news. Really, how's it good news to hear that I am completely a lost cause, totally deserving God's wrath and judgment? It's good news because we're so good at faking it. To, to hear it laid out so clearly, we're, we're so good at hiding. So when people say, hey, how was your week? We can always say, man, my week was so good. But, but imagine if church happened this way. If we would come in on church on a Sunday and rather than just asking people, hey, how was your week? Your week just played up on the screen behind us. And not just like what happened, but like your, your thoughts and your intentions and your heart. Just everyone, okay, one at a time. We're all gonna show, right? Can you imagine that? We'd be a much smaller church, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Scripture says that we're spiritually dead. And listen, it's in recognizing that that we stop trying to breathe in the water and we begin to look for the source for oxygen, for air. When we see that we're drowning, we actually reach out for life. Look at verse four. Verse four starts with this, but. The, the whole beauty of the gospel is right there in that word. It's seeing our sin, but, 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 but that's not the end of your story. Why, why spend so much time on the brokenness before we get to the but? Uh, I like how Charles Spurgeon said it. He says this, too many think lightly of sin and therefore lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned with the rope about his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he's pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he's been cleansed. Nobody gets fired up about how broken we are. But, but we need to talk about it so we see the beauty of our salvation, so we see the, the amazing of amazing grace. So, so here's verses four and five. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I mean, notice in verses four and five, who's the main actor in verses four and five? In, in verse three, the main actor was us. Sin, all me. Salvation, it's all God. 
I did all the sinning. God does all the saving. It's, it's, it's his goodness. You see that? It's, it's his loving kindness. It's his righteousness. It's his mercy. It's his grace. It's his renewing. It's his transforming of us. It had nothing to do with me. Now, I was thinking about it this way. Earlier this week, my, my, one of my daughters and I were, were out for a drive, and she asked, hey, Dad, have you ever been knocked out cold? And I wanted to get past the offense of thinking my daughter was thinking my dad must have had head trauma, right? <clears throat> and so, yeah, I say, yeah, here's one of the times it happened. I, 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 was, I was snowboarding in, in BC, and, and I, I, I don't know what happened, so I make up the story I was doing something really awesome. But, but uh, the, it, it took a while of kind of dazing in and out, in and out, but when I finally came to, I was in the back of an ambulance, now, this was in the early 90s. We didn't wear helmets then, all right? So, so here I was in the, with a thing in my head, with kind of a bloody thing, and I had been out cold. I, I didn't know where I was. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how I got to where. And what I didn't do anything to be saved. I just woke up. Hey, where am I? Hey, you've been rescued, man. You're strapped to the back of a snowmobile. We drove you here. We're taking you to the hospital to get checked out. That's salvation. God does all the work. We didn't do anything to, we, we just, we were dead and we're made alive. It wasn't your goodness that saves you. God, God doesn't look at us and say, man, man, you know what? You're really good. You're, you're like almost there. No, no, we were lost and broken. We were dead and blind. It was God's goodness, his loving kindness. He does all the work of cleansing according to his mercy. Now, grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. That, that's God's mercy. Saying, you know what? Because of our sin, we deserve punishment, but in his mercy, he rescues us. And not just rescues us, but he, he cleans us. The, the words here, it's, it's regeneration and renewal. Those words mean everything changes. The, the power of God comes into your life. This is what the gospel means. When you've given your life to Christ, it means you're renewed and transformed everything. It, it's not as though God comes in and goes, hey, hey, let me help your identity and kind of firm it up a little bit. No, you get a whole new identity. It's not, hey, let me help you reach your goals. No, you have all new goals. It, it's not, well, well, hey, let me come alongside of you and, and just see if I, I can give you a, a better, it's a whole new agenda, a whole new life, whole new desires. It's completely changed and renewed and regenerated. Verse six, he says, this is the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Man, there's so much in these verses. Man, I'd encourage you, if, if you want to study something this week, man, just unpack these two verses. There's this, this hope we have, this, this justification. We've been made right just as if I'd never sinned because of God's mercy. And, and he gives us this future hope. He says, you have this hope as, as an heir to the, to the future. But, but here's the thing, that, that future hope we have, it actually changes us now, today. That right now, as a Christ follower, you're declared righteous. You're, you're seen by God through Christ as Christ's righteousness, his perfection. It's a future hope for sure. Yeah, one day that will be so true about who I am, but right now that's how God sees us. And, and total transformation will happen when Jesus returns in glory. But listen, listen, we can experience the reality today. 
I like how Tim Keller explains it. He says it's like time travel, man. We, we, get to, we get to experience what's going to happen in the future. We get to actually experience it all today, right now. That transformation. It's like this. It's like being told you have a $100 million inheritance coming to you. It's coming to you years from now, but, but until it gets to you, you're going to get a million dollars a year. So, so when does your life change? Probably changes the, the immediate time you start getting those million-dollar checks. Yeah, but, but I'm going to have a hundred times that in, in years to come. Yeah, but when does your life change? It happens because you're a recipient of that today. And Paul's saying, hey, I want you to know this transformation. It's coming into your life. For sure, there's going to be a, the, the fullness of it in the future, but you have that transformation the moment you believe. And this new birth, it's not just a, well, you know, I've got an inner peace now. It's not just this, this feeling you've got, oh, I'm forgiven. It's, it's God's healing kingdom power in your life today. It's, it's the presence of the future today. It's, it's God's future reality invading your present reality. I mean, think about what this means. It means, look, look at the people who changed the world, who God used in the first century planting churches. Who did God use? God used guys like Peter and Paul. Look at what the transformation looked like in their lives. Peter was a coward. Read about him through the Gospels. He's, he's always the one with the big mouth, but, but nothing to back it up. He's running and hiding. And then what happens? He's transformed. He's renewed. He's made new. And he becomes so bold with the Gospel. How bold? So bold he was martyred for his faith. Crucified upside down. Look at Paul. Paul was a jerk. He, he was mean. He was malicious. He was harsh. Paul meets Christ, he's transformed to the point where you read through scriptures and he's writing more about love and grace than about anything else. Here's the encouraging thing. They changed history and they weren't made up of anything different than you and I are made up of. They were renewed and transformed just like you, Christ follower, today are. I mean, that's the indicative. That's, that's the promise. That's the gospel. And Paul's saying, this is who you are, Christ follower. One who was lost, but now has been found. One who was broken, but now has been transformed into the perfection of Jesus Christ to live it out in his power. That's the promise. So now what's the command? Here's our second and last point this morning. It's this. Our church is called to transform our community. I mean, that's the command. So, so what's the response then? Well, let, let me start before I get into what we do as a church. There's another response that, that that whole promise should lead you to. If you don't know Christ, there's a call on your life too. If you're here this morning and, and you've never given your life to Christ, there's a call on your life right now. There's, there's a call on your life to be born again. To come to the end of yourself and say, yes, I am foolish and disobedient and led astray. I'm drowning and breathing in more and more water. It's coming to that point of saying, I need new life. I need to be changed. I, I, I don't just need a little cleaning up. I need a whole new heart. It's coming to that place of seeing my sin has separated me from a holy God. And the only hope I have to deal with that sin is for that sin to be paid for completely. And, and you recognize religion won't pay the debt. Doing good works won't cover the gap. 
Instead, you need to die and be raised again new. And so what's your call this morning? If you don't know Christ, your call is to come and receive the gift of salvation. And you can only receive it as a gift. You come empty-handed. The only things in your hand is, here's my sin. Here's my brokenness. Now, for those of you who know Jesus, you, you have new life. What's the call on your life? The call on your life is to see the world, see your culture, see your neighborhood, see your circle of influence, listen, through gospel eyes. As a church, we, we, we should have a marked difference about us. Something that sets us apart as different. We, we should look different. We should act differently. We should behave differently. Why? Because of the gospel in our lives. So, so if the gospel's changed us, what's it going to look like? Go, go to verse 1 again. He says, remind them, talking about us, Christ followers, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient now, those words submissive and obedient, we hate hearing those words. No one wants to be told, hey, be submissive, be obedient. What do, they, what do they say, though? They say, hey, be humble. Be humble. Now, if you're thinking, yeah, that's easy for Paul to say to, to Titus, I mean, he, he doesn't understand the culture I live in, really, really. If you look at the culture that Titus was in, in Crete, under Roman occupation, Roman rule at the time, the person in charge is a guy named Nero, the guy who would light up his, his parties around his house with Christians, cover them in wax, light them on fire, and that's how he lights up his parties. And Paul's saying, hey, in that culture, be humble, be submissive. Be obedient. Man, how, how, how do I do that? Remember the gospel. Oh, oh, oh right. I, I was as dead as Nero is. I was as lost as that guy who hounds me all the time. I was as broken and blind as that person who gives me a hard time all the time. And I did nothing to become alive. It was all God's grace that changed me. Listen, it changes how we deal with our world. It changes how we deal with difficult people. It changes why? Because we respond with humility. We respond in the reality of the gospel. He goes on, he says, be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. He says, avoid fighting, be, be, be gentle, be, be kind. Now, now here's the difficulty of what Paul is saying. In, in Greek mentality, for you to say, hey, be gentle, be kind, be humble, in a Greek mindset where, where Titus was ministering, in a Greek mindset, you go, yeah, that makes sense in this room right here. That would make sense for people who I would call my friends, my brothers, my sisters. But look at what Paul says. Look, look what he says. Perfect courtesy towards who? Towards all people. In the original Greek, you know what all people means? Yeah, it means all people. That's, there's nothing special there. It just, it means all people. So what does that mean? It means that coworker that drives you nuts. What do I do? Be humble, be gentle, be loving, be kind. What about the boss that's, that's unreasonable? You don't gossip about them. You don't be quarrelsome with them. What about the spouse or the family member who's, who's unloving? There's a call to be gentle, to be loving, to be meek. 
And the gospel says, even when you feel like they don't deserve it. I mean, when the gospel takes root in your heart, it changes how you deal with the world around you. You, you find yourself giving your money away more. You find yourself giving your time away more. You find yourself giving your life and your heart away more. I love how it says in verse one there, it says, be ready for every good work. Be, be eager and ready to do good works. Not, not because you have to, but because you want to. Because you want your life to be all about the glory of God and the good of others. Why? Because you've been transformed. You're gracious because God was gracious. You, you're loving because God showered his love on you. So for us here this morning, do, do you give more than you take? Are you eager to do good for your neighbors? In some small way, is, is your community better off because you're living the gospel out in your community? I mean, I've said this before, but I think of it this way. If, if Harvest Muskoka and Harvest Perry Sound just disappeared tomorrow, we just, we just ceased to exist, would our communities notice a difference? Would they say, man, man something's, something's gone. There was this beacon of light. There was, there was something that was so good and it, and it was being infused into our community. And, and would they notice we were gone? Now take that question out of the big realm of our church and bring it right into your life. In your life, in the, in the people who are around you. Would your neighbors miss you? Would there be a loss on your street if, if you decided we're moving out of Muskoka today? I mean, think about your workplace. Think, think about those spheres of your life where, wherever you find yourself, if, if you're removed from that, would somebody say, man, I miss them? And they did, they did good. There was, there was something about them, something about their presence here. And Jesus is saying to us through the Apostle Paul here, that's what the church is supposed to be. The church goes into the world. The church is the light by which the world sees the truth and the hope of the gospel. Look at verse 8. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy, and I, and I want you to insist on these things. On what? On what he just laid out, the gospel, the goodness of the gospel, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. He's saying, listen, the world will look in. The world will see what you're doing. They'll see Jesus in you as you live out the gospel. I mean, that's the reality of the gospel. If we've been transformed. I mean, how can we see the cost of grace and still be okay with sin in our lives? How can we see the goodness of of God and still be stingy with our money and with our time and with our love? How can we see the cross of Christ and still hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness? How can we see Jesus leaving heaven, coming to us and, and not be lit up to share the good news with the billions who don't know Jesus, with the billions who haven't heard the gospel? It's the gospel that compels us that changes us. I was just reading an article the last couple of weeks about, about what's going on in the Middle East and, and, and <clears throat> in our time right now, more Muslims are coming to, face, coming to faith in the last 10 years than they did in the history of Christianity before. Now, why is that? 
Why is that? Here's what they say. They say one is because they're reading the Quran and reading the Bible. But the second is this. They're seeing the lives of those who call themselves Christians. They're seeing those who are living in a country where to convert to Christianity could mean your death. And they're saying, man, these people are risking their lives to love us and to live out this gospel. There's something different about them. They've been transformed. They've been changed. So Paul wraps it all up. He says this, verse 9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and they're worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, listen, it's about the gospel. Don't, don't be distracted. Is doctrine important? For sure, doctrine is important, especially doctrine that, that, that points to the gospel. But I, I just don't have time for, for, hey, hey, I don't know about the music in our church. Maybe the, the drums are a bit loud. Really, really? Is that, are we going to talk about that again? Well, well there, there's, this, there's this small doctrine over here that I'd really like to discuss and unpack. And okay, I'll talk about doctrine because doctrine's important. But listen, it's secondary to the truth of the gospel, what the gospel says about us and the mission we've been called to. Paul says, don't get distracted. Verse 12, he says, when I send Artemis and some other guy to you, Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Verse 13, do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See, they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace and peace to you all. Here's what I love about that closing statement there. He talks with this, this guy named Zenos, Zenos, the lawyer. It's the only part in Scripture where you read about a Christian lawyer. <laughs> I didn't mean anything about that. That came out wrong. <laughs> That's not what I meant. <laughs> Here, here's what I mean. Zenos, he gives his, his job. Here's what Zenos says. Zenos the lawyer. Why is that? Zenos is just a regular guy. He has an everyday job. He, he's not a church officer. He's not a pastor. He's not a missionary. He wasn't an apostle. But, but, but although he wasn't an apostle by title, although he wasn't a pastor by title, although he didn't have a missionary title on him, he was sent by the Lord, like an apostle would be, sent by the Lord to raise up more gospel-centered communities, gospel-centered churches. He had an everyday job, but he was on mission. So, so let me encourage you for a moment. Regardless of what your job title says, it might not be missionary, it might not be pastor, but the Lord has invited you, invited you to the mission of the gospel, to, to be a missionary by your life. And Zenos and Apollos, they're, they're being sent out into this, this hugely difficult context and they're not running from it, they're running to it. Why? Because the power of the gospel changes us and compels us. So as the worship team comes up, as we end off this morning, let, let me say this. God does a lot of things by his power. And we read about it in scripture, by his power, by his power. But there's one thing in scripture actually called the power of God. Not by the power of God, it's called the very power of God. Romans 1.16 says this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, of the gospel, what we just talked about this morning. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes.
Amen. Amen. I mean, it is the power of God. Everything God's doing to renew your heart, your life, everything God's doing to renew our world, everything God's doing to renew Muskoka and Perry Sound and to the ends of the earth is in the gospel. So as we end off this morning, the call is this. If you don't know Christ this morning, this morning the call is to give your life to Christ. To, to be born again, to, to receive this good news of the gospel, to come to the end of yourself and say, man, I've been striving to make life work on my own terms and it's not working. It comes up empty every time. And you come to that place and say, man, I need Jesus. I'm sick of trying to breathe underwater. As a Christian, what, what, what do you do this morning? I would say this, that your prayer would be this, God, God, help me to avoid silly things. Help me to avoid horizontal things. God, let the gospel become bigger in my life. That you'd fill me with mercy and grace and forgiveness and patience and love. That you would use my life to speak the very words of the gospel in my family, in my neighborhood, around the world. God, use me, send me. But it begins with the gospel. God, let me breathe the goodness of the gospel this morning. That you'd send me out of here changed to live out the gospel in a dying world, to share the good news of Jesus and recognize that the power of God is in that. Not, not in your ability to share, not, not in your, the way you can explain the gospel. The power of God is in the gospel itself. That you live it out, you speak it out, you talk to those God brings across your path and say, let me tell you the good news of Jesus. And you entrust it to the power of God. Would you stand with me as I pray? Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the truth of the gospel. That we, we were lost we were dead, we were blind, and you reached out. That we, we would fall down with nothing to offer and you saved. God, I pray that we never lose that, that we come back to that again and again. And God, that that, that gospel, Lord, that it would change our hearts to the point where it would change our relationships. God, that, that in this room right now where, where there's brokenness in a relationship, that, that the gospel would infuse the way we walk through that. God, that we be agents of grace. God, we're in this room that lives are drowning under the weight of horizontal idols, of grabbing a hold of power or control or comfort or, or people or, or whatever. Lord, that we would release those today and we breathe in the life of the gospel. That you've made us new. That you've transformed us. You've renewed us. And God, that you would send us out of here as agents of grace, that Muskoka and Perry Sound would be different because we're here. God, that you would use us to bring this power of your gospel to the hurting and lost in our community, Lord. Thank you for what you've been doing, Lord, that we've seen the, the lost saved. God, that you would continue to use us for those purposes, God. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.